Good day, friends, and welcome. It's August 5th, and this is the One Year Bible Tour Guide podcast, where each day we read progressively through the Bible with a portion from the Old Testament and the New Testament, plus a daily dip into the Bible's prayer and praise book, the Book of Psalms, and we take a nugget from the treasure chest of wisdom in the Book of Proverbs. My name is David McAdam, pastor and Bible teacher, and I am happy to encourage you to travel with me through the pages of Scripture and help you see how it all fits together. Today we start the 15th book of the Old Testament, the book of Ezra. It records the return of the Jewish remnant to their homeland after the Babylonian captivity and the restoration of the temple. And as you may remember from yesterday, we are now in the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians in the New Testament. Our hope is that this podcast will make Bible reading a regular part of your daily schedule. So whether you listen in the early hours of the day, at the breakfast table, or on your commute to work, During a break mid-morning, midday, or just before you hit the hay and are ready to make it your day's end grand finale, may this spur your meditation and devotion to the revealed will of God and the truth as it is in Jesus. We begin with our Old Testament reading from the book of Ezra, chapter 1. This is the assigned August 5th reading in the One Year Bible, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. The Proclamation of Cyrus, Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, thirty basins of gold, one thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar give up, while the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Chapter 2. The Exiles Return Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, 
Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 775. The sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bebai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonikam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Aden, 454. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Vezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Gibar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophah, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath Arim, Shephira, and Beeroth, 743. The sons of Rama and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sena'a, 3,630. The priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel, of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, and the sons of Shobai, in all 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Saiha, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanah, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzza, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Besai, the sons of Azna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephesim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Bahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Neziah, and the sons of Hatapha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jaala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of 
Pokarath Hazebaim, and the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakada, 652. Also, of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God, to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. And this is the end of our reading from the Old Testament today, the book of Ezra. Now let's step back and reflect upon what we have seen. Originally, in ancient times, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were counted as one scroll titled Ezra-Nehemiah. Many scholars believe that these books are compilations of material acquired from different sources and put together by the same author who compiled the material found in First and Second Chronicles. There are commonalities between these four books. For example, Second Chronicles ends with the edict of Persia's King Cyrus in 538 BC, permitting the Jewish exiles to return from their Babylonian captivity and resettle in Jerusalem. The book of Ezra begins where Second Chronicles leaves off. Like the book of First and Second Chronicles, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah focus predominantly on the history of Jerusalem and the temple. Chronicles records the history of the temple's original construction under the reign of Solomon, and Ezra records its post-exilic reconstruction, and Nehemiah records the repair and reconstruction of Jerusalem's walls. One observable contrast is that Chronicles downplays or passes over Solomon's sinful multiplication of wives and idolatrous practices, whereas in the book of Nehemiah, his sins are called out. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 26. The compilations of Ezra and Nehemiah both include portions written by Ezra and Nehemiah in the first person. Ezra chapter 7, verses 27 through chapter 9, verse 15 is known as the Memoir of Ezra. The book of Ezra covers about 100 years of history, 
from King Cyrus of Persia issuing his edict permitting the Jews to return to their homeland in 538 B.C., to the rebuilding of the city walls in Jerusalem after Nehemiah's arrival there in 445 B.C. Chapters 1 through 6 occur before Ezra's time. They cover the first wave of exiles that returned with Zerubbabel and the priest Joshua in 538 through 535 B.C. Chapters 7 through 10 cover a time beginning with Ezra's arrival in Jerusalem some 70 years later in 458 B.C. The books of First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, were composed in this post-exilic period. No more is there a king on the throne in the northern or southern kingdoms. The glory and glory days of the kings of Israel and Judah are over. However, the chronicler knows the story is not over. The theme of Ezra is the faithfulness of God. His promise to finish the work he has started remains. There is another son of David to come, and he will reign forever. The theme of the book of Ezra is faithfulness. God is faithful to his promises, and he calls his people to be faithful to his word, to his call, and to his work. Notice that the book begins with a reminder of God's faithfulness to bring to fulfillment the prophecies of Jeremiah. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. God is faithful to his word, and he is sovereign over all of history. Ezra recounts a mini exodus. Whereas Moses recorded the massive exodus from Egypt at the Passover, the book of Ezra records the exodus of God's people from their Babylonian captivity. God hardened the proud, resistant heart of Pharaoh in the first exodus, as he did Nebuchadnezzar's heart in the ransacking of Jerusalem. But the same God that hardened the hearts of these kings softened the heart of another. He stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus, founded the Achaemenid dynasty, and the head of the Medo-Persian Empire. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Not only is God's sovereign power in view in these opening sentences, but also his omniscience in the accuracy of prophecy. The words of Jeremiah regarding the 70-year captivity has come true. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Isaiah 46.10 At least 200 years prior to the event, the prophet Isaiah predicted that God would use Cyrus to commission the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. He calls him by name in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28 and chapter 45, verse 1. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. The details of the who, what, where, when, and how of the exiles return to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem are predicted accurately in prophecy. How do we calculate the 70-year captivity predicted by Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 11 and chapter 29 verse 10 
when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple in 587 BC and Cyrus issued the decree permitting the Jews to return in 538 BC, a period of only 49 years. There are several plausible explanations as to how the 70 years are to be measured. Number one, the first temple was destroyed in 587 BC and the rebuilding of it was complete and dedicated in 517 BC, which is exactly 70 years. Number two, the Assyrian Empire fell to the Babylonians in 609 BC and the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians in 539 BC. So the duration of the Babylonian Empire that Jeremiah prophesied would threaten the subjection of Judah was exactly 70 years. Number three, the first invasion of the Babylonians was in 605 BC and the laying of the foundation of the temple was in 536 B.C., which is considered a 70-year span. The compiler of the book of Ezra supports his claim that Jeremiah's prophecies have been accurately fulfilled. He carefully inventories the numbers of vessels taken by the Babylonians from the house of the Lord that were returned with the exiles. In Ezra chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, it was just as Jeremiah predicted. Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They will be carried to Babylon, and they will be there until the day I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 21 and 22. The Babylonian captivity seems to have cured the Jews of their idolatries. The people fall into many sins, but not to the overt pagan practices that became so prevalent before the exile. Compared to the dramatic intrigues and battles of the kings of Israel and Judah, the book of Ezra may seem more akin to ordinary life, but it is a life of new beginnings. We see the purposes of God advancing, not without opposition. The altar, the foundation, and the temple will become manifest once again. This is a relevant message for us today. Christ is building His church, and we are manifesting the altar of the cross, the sure foundation of His Word, and are being fitted together into a fully functional temple of His Spirit. As you read Cyrus's edict in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, you might ask, why would the king of Persia be so generous to the Jews? Cyrus allowed groups to return to settle in their homelands and re-establish the favor of their territorial gods. This established a buffer zone of nations composed of loyal subjects and deities protecting his kingdom. What is noticeable in the listing of returning families is the low number of Levites. You also will notice how important it was to maintain family records. Those who could not prove their family lineage were denied certain privileges of citizenship. In Ezra chapter 2, verses 62 and 63, the heads of families gave free will offerings to the work according to their ability. In chapter 2, verse 68, and we will read more tomorrow. Now let's go to the New Testament reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. Christ, the wisdom and power of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? 
Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 2 Proclaiming Christ Crucified And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this concludes today's portion from the New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians. Paul boldly proclaims that the answer to the human dilemma is not found in the ideas, philosophies, or social strategies of men. It is found in preaching the finished work of Christ on the cross. This frustrates the flesh as it gives no opportunity for the flesh to boast. We cannot save ourselves. The cross tells us the truth. Our flesh is capable of the most heinous of crimes, putting the Holy Son of God to death. In ourselves, we are incapable of producing righteousness, achieving justice, telling the truth, or being a friend of God. The world in its wisdom did not know God, nor did they recognize Him when He came to earth. They put Him to death. The Jews expected messianic signs that would indicate that He was on their side. They were expecting their Messiah to affirm and exalt their righteousness with miraculous signs they could be proud of. But the only sign Jesus pledged to give them was the sign of Jonah, the sign of the cross. All their pride needed to be swallowed up in the judgment of death. Only by grace through faith in Christ could they be brought to life. The Greeks looked for wisdom, principles to live by. In the cross, Jesus gives us only one principle to live by, and it is not appealing to the pride of the flesh. It is faith in the crucified, risen, and ascended Son of God. God's wise provision is for Christ to be for us all that we are not. He is our wisdom from God, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Paul reminds the Corinthians that they were not made receptive to the gospel by virtue of their pedigree, their intelligence, their training, or moral strength. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Paul confesses that when he came to visit the Corinthians, it wasn't with any confidence in his flesh. It was only to proclaim and demonstrate the sufficiency of Christ. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Now let's move on to our next stop on our Bible tour, the book of Psalms, the Bible's prayer and songbook. And we continue with Psalm 27, with verse 7 through to verse 14. So let's read the next seven verses of Psalm 27. Psalm 27, verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And this ends today's reading from the book of Psalms. The psalmist's heart's desire is to seek God's face. What does that mean? When you see someone's face, you not only hear what they say, but you can know more about what they are thinking and feeling. By seeking God's face, we are looking to do what delights Him. The psalmist's prayer is that God would not abandon him due to displeasure. Then he recalls God's character and promise. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Psalm 27, verse 10. He asks that he not be misled or given over to his oppressors in verses 11 and 12. He concludes with a declaration of faith and an admonition for his own soul. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Verses 13 through 14. And now to the Bible's treasure chest of wisdom, Proverbs chapter 20, and we will read verses 22 and 23. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will deliver you. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. We learn from these Proverbs that the Lord hates any miscarriage of justice as indicated by the dishonest weighing on the scales. We don't know how to repay evil equitably. Therefore, wait for the Lord. Remember, vengeance is His. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21 read, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. 
Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now let's pray. Lord, you are the God who makes all things new. We thank you for your faithfulness to your people. You perfected the things that concern us. You finished the work that you start. You have stirred our hearts to follow after you. And for that we give you praise. Your sovereign mercy turns us away from our idolatries and causes us to see the perfect provision of your Son. He has satisfied your desires and ours. He has called us to a new life in which we can be workers together with you. Be glorified as we seek to manifest the truth of your altar at Calvary, the foundation of your holy word, and the fulfillment of your promise to make us your dwelling place through the Spirit. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for sharing the journey today. I hope you were encouraged as we have been making our way through the Old and New Testaments and that you would join us tomorrow. You can invite others to join you in this daily regimen of Bible reading, how good it is to be built up in the Word of Truth. It's a joy to be able to read the Scriptures with you. If you'd like to know more about New Life and its ministries, you can go to our website, newlife.org. You can also subscribe to a free daily email with a written copy of our commentary on the one-year Bible readings. And if you would like to know more about how you can support the work that we do to get the gospel out here and abroad, and if you would like to know about our musical theater arts ministry, you can go to our website, newlifefinearts.org. So until next time, shalom. May the grace of our Lord and Savior, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all.